0: this wouldn't be unique to texas because people used to ask me what's it like to work in the bible belt and i used to say you know texas is texas is part bible belt but it's also part wild west and there's a strong belief in individual rights and freedoms that didn't change until the rise of the religious right and that that's when that changed
1: women who come into the are clinic are the same as the women who are outside the clinic. They have religious beliefs ethical systems what they have is a pregnancy that they've decided they don't want and is not in their best interest for them, the children they have or want to have for their family or for their community They, they they go through an ethical moral decision making process that's what people don't know even I mean the youngest 12 13 years old they will do that when they come in these women that and it's especially hard on women who have been going to anti-abortion churches they come in thinking i'm a bad woman about to do the wrong thing the thing that's prohibited god is going to punish me and they talk about counseling is god going to punish me is god gonna am i going to go to hell oh what she really wants is affirmation she wants to, she needs to feel that, have it reaffirmed that I am a, a good person.
0: It is something to have wept as we have wept.
2: That was Curtis Boyd and Glenna Halverson Boyd, who provided abortions in Texas from the early 1970s until this past summer. Too often, when we think about abortion and religion, We picture protesters outside of clinics carrying graphic posters and shouting that abortion is a sin. We might envision white crosses on church lawns and the blanket condemnation of abortion as murder. But there are other stories about abortion and faith, quieter stories that involve devout people engaging in the hard work of reproductive health care. For nearly half a century, Curtis Boyd and Glenna Halverson Boyd have devoted their lives to offering safe and affirming abortion care. Curtis is a former Baptist minister. Glenna is an atheist. They have been married for close to 50 years and share a commitment to providing safe and affirming abortions. Curtis began providing abortions in East Texas in the late 1960s when elective abortion was a crime. The genesis of his activism was in interfaith religious efforts make abortion safe and legal in 1973 after the u.s supreme court legalized elective abortion local religious groups helped curtis open an abortion clinic in dallas in the 1970s glenna halverson boyd began working at this clinic as a counselor and soon came to oversee their practice as co-director their dallas practice existed until the summer of 2022 for curtis and glenna providing abortions Has been an act of love and compassion. It offered them a way of helping people who are suffering, and across six decades, they have grounded their ongoing service in the fundamental belief that abortion is and ought to be an accessible form of health care.
3: In June 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization overturned Roe v. Wade. The Dobbs decision took away federal protections for abortion rights and allowed states to ban abortions. It effectively ended the Boyd's abortion services in Texas. Across the country, the Dobbs decision has already magnified the obstacles many patients face in securing safe, affordable abortions. It has created horrific healthcare consequences across the United States. In Louisiana, newly created state policies prevented doctors from performing a dilation and extraction abortion procedure on a woman whose fetus did not have a skull. And in Ohio, a 10-year-old rape victim had to cross state lines to secure a legal abortion. Such stories are not outliers, but the predictable consequences of criminalizing abortion. In tracing Curtis and Glenna's paths, from before Roe v. Wade, when abortion was a crime, through the turbulent decades when abortion was legal, and into the present, when abortion has become a crime once again, we center their commitment to their patients and to each other. Glenna Halverson and Curtis Boyd met and fell in love through their work at Curtis's clinic in the 1970s. Abortion brought them together. Their enduring partnership has enabled them to withstand the violence and hostility of the anti abortion movement. In the face of tremendous opposition and personal risk, Curtis and Glenna share a belief in the importance of their labor. This episode, then, is not only a story of faith in abortion, but a story about abortion providers that is underappreciated and seldom told a love story. I'm Lauren Gutterman.
2: I'm Gillian Frank. Welcome to Sexing History.
4: It is something to-
2: When Curtis began his medical career in the mid-1960s, getting an elective abortion in Texas was difficult. The state had prohibited abortion since the 1850s, except in cases where pregnancy threatened the life of the mother. Doctors seldom bent these strict rules, even though they knew that some of the women they turned away might end up in emergency rooms or worse after seeking out illegal abortions. If elective legal abortions in Texas were difficult to come by, Illegal abortions were a different and well-known story. Illegal abortionists operated in motels, in private homes, in gas stations, or neighborhood bars. Some Texas women traveled to border towns in Mexico in search of providers. Luckier abortion seekers found skilled medical practitioners. Many others fell into the hands of unskilled predators who were all too willing to take their money and to mutilate their bodies. By the mid-1960s, Texas newspapers drew from public health research and ongoing legislative hearings across the country to report how hundreds of thousands of criminal abortions were being performed each year across the United States. These reports shared alarming statistics about botched illegal procedures leading to hundreds of deaths a year. Many more women, anonymous and uncounted, suffered bodily harm and psychological trauma from these criminalized operations
3: mainstream journalism public health research and legislative hearings made the dangers of incompetent and criminal abortion apparent to the general public in the 1960s they also underlined that a skilled physician could quickly easily and safely perform abortions a growing chorus of professional and lay health advocates called for the reform of abortion laws others impatient with the pace of change, decided to break the law. It was in this spirit that Curtis Boyd began offering safe and affordable illegal abortions. His action, five years before Roe v. Wade, transformed a small town in southwestern Texas into a hub for abortion seekers from across the region. In the late 1960s, thousands of unwillingly pregnant women found their way to Curtis's office in the small town of Athens, Texas, 75 miles southeast of Dallas. Many of these women were destitute. All were desperate for competent medical care. And Curtis, driven by his religious convictions, broke a law he viewed as immoral.
2: Athens seems like an unlikely destination for illegal abortions. In the 1960s, it was a rural community with a population of fewer than 10,000 people. Like many small towns in Texas, Athens had churches, farms, football, and a small downtown. It was known for black-eyed peas, peaches, pigs, and pottery. A highlight of the community's social calendar was the annual Fiddler's Reunion, where Western string bands from across the region performed. Curtis grew up on a small farm outside of Athens and was raised as a Southern Baptist. As a child, he learned that the Bible was the literal word of God that he could achieve salvation by surrendering his life to Jesus, and that it was his duty to share his faith with others. Curtis's ability to memorize and recite Bible passages led him to become a preacher at the age of 16. Yet, steeped as he was in the religious life of his evangelical community, Curtis began questioning the rigid religious teachings of his elders.
1: I was interested in really philosophy, but I didn't I don't think I even knew the word philosophy when I was young, as a boy. But I was a very uh, inquisitive, intelligent uh, boy, and I had a lot of questions. And I was interested in how how things work. How, how's this world put together? You know, how do we know uh, what is that we're behaving and conducting ourselves uh, in the way that pleases God? I wasn't always sure about about that. So they. Although the other brothers and sisters in the church were very sure that God knew what he was doing in all things.
3: After he entered college, Curtis became increasingly disturbed by racial segregation, which he considered contrary to his Christian values. The Bible, Curtis said, called out to everyone's salvation. Everyone can come unto Jesus and was welcome. Curtis wondered if that's the case, Why did his fellow evangelicals tolerate segregated restrooms, water fountains, and restaurants? These, and other revelations, caused Curtis to move away from fundamentalism. While attending medical school in Dallas, Curtis discovered Unitarian Universalism. Unitarian Universalists were a progressive bunch, and they were positively wild by Southern Baptist standards. At the time, evangelicals usually shied away from politics— they emphasize salvation in the next life and individual transformation. Unitarians express their faith through social service and political action. They saw it as their duty to challenge unjust social structures. As one Unitarian Universalist explained about the denomination in the mid 1960s, instead of a creed, it sets its people free to seek a living truth. Instead of a ritual, It asks devotion to the deeds that make the world more righteous and its people more just. Curtis felt at home in the experimental worship services, vibrant discussion groups, and community programs for education, civil rights, and civil liberties. Curtis returned to Athens and started a private practice in 1964. He threw himself into local politics. It was also around this time that he performed his first illegal abortion. He told us about the circumstances that led him to break the law.
1: So when I was first went into medical practice in the primary care, on one occasion, a nurse knocked on my door, I was in the office at the time doing some chart work. And she told me there's a young woman here who is insisting on talking with, with me and that she had She needed to talk to me privately. So I told her to show her in. Coming in was this late teens. She's probably in her late teens. Typical uh, East Texas farm girl. She had on a feed sack dress. So I asked her to sit down and I said, so what can I do for you, Sally? Which was her name that the nurse gave me. And she said, "Uh, I need you to do me an abortion. And she used the word, I thought, I said, "Well, uh, you know, I can't do that. That's illegal." And she said, "Don't matter. You got to do me one." And there she sat. What am I going to do? I mean, I already knew I was going to do it. I was going to do an abortion, and I thought, "I'm going to do it."
2: Curtis's Unitarian Congregation in Athens fostered his growing commitment to reproductive rights. In the mid-1960s, his church was actively studying what they called women's issues, meaning the laws and cultural practices that subordinated women. Of particular concern to Unitarians was the fact that restrictive laws drove, in their words, many women in the United States and Canada to seek illegal abortions with increased risk of death while others must travel to distant lands for lawful relief. The Unitarian Universalists issued a path-breaking statement in 1963 describing abortion restrictions as an affront to human life and dignity. Unitarians' deep concern for dignity and rights led them to fight to make abortion legal and accessible, though not necessarily in that order. The minister at Curtis's Unitarian Church in Athens, Texas shared his denomination's sense of urgency ...about the dangers facing thousands of abortion seekers. He enlisted Curtis to advance a mission... ...that was being undertaken by Unitarian leaders across the United States... ...identifying affordable and medically competent abortion providers. The goal was to allow Unitarian clergy to refer women to trusted doctors. What Curtis found was that such providers were few and far between. Competent abortion providers regularly charged upward of $500 which would be approximately $4,500 today. Poor people, Curtis remembered, couldn't get abortions.
3: Curtis and his fellow Unitarians were not alone in the search for abortion providers. 75 miles away in Dallas, two Methodist ministers were spearheading a fight to make abortion accessible and legal. They were among hundreds of ministers and rabbis across the United States participating in a clandestine abortion referral and support network in the 1960s. These two Methodist ministers founded the Dallas branch of the Clergy Consultation Service on Abortion, an ecumenical group of religious leaders who helped abortion seekers find safe and affordable providers in the United States and Mexico. Here's one of the group's founders, Reverend Claude Evans.
4: Part of my work at Southern Methodist University is counseling. Occasionally there come to me girls, teenagers, pregnant, when marriage does not seem to be indicated, when romance is not involved, when this is a sin of youth and of passion and not a decision made calmly. And one day with a counselling sitting in front of me with this problem, I began to see my daughter through her eyes. I wondered what would I do if my daughter had become pregnant and marriage was not indicated, when there seemed to be no good solution, and gradually my mind changed, so that now I do believe that in some situations, in some cases, abortion should be a matter between the mother, her doctor, and her spiritual counselor.
3: The Dallas clergy were desperate to find local doctors who could provide abortions. They too asked Curtis to help. Curtis knew the task was dangerous. He remembers his fateful decision in this way.
1: I mean, it would be devastating for my immediate family and my extended family would be shamed by it. And I I would end up without a medical license and in prison. I mean, that's a big ask. What he basically said, but the ministers, you know, we will, te- if you're charged, we will testify on your behalf and your good character, and I think we, you know, we will protect you. I'm saying, but I you. no, you're not going to protect me. But I'm still going to be guilty of a felony. Their testimony is not going to stop
3: that. Despite the legal risks, Curtis's faith compelled him to say yes to the ministers. He explained, "You should be humble before your God. You should serve." I acted on those impulses of service and compassion. You know
1: jesus died on the cross he died for others so maybe there's some of that there i don't i you know, it's it's just some yes. this this is almost like a calling to me this is what this is the work that i've been called to do this is the calling i wanted uh, and that i can make a difference i am
2: making a difference After Curtis opened his doors to abortion seekers, they arrived in droves from across the United States. Clergy referred most of them, but a number heard about him through word of mouth. Curtis recalls that they came by bus, by train, through hitchhiking, by car, however they could. And Curtis worked long hours, sometimes not turning out the clinic's lights until late at night. He did not want to turn away women who had no other options. Curtis also wanted to make his services affordable. He set his price at $150, at a time when many providers charged as much as $1,000. He waived his fee entirely for poorer women.
5: I charged a minimal rate. I mean, I was... You know, I could have done all the abortions I wanted for a thousand dollars, and I charged for initially only a hundred dollars. I mean, it was nothing. Let me tell you about this woman. This woman saw a minister who was in Austin, Texas, one of the clergy who was a member of the clergy consultation. Referred her. She was a Mexican American woman immigrant. Um, she had several children. She's poor, but I, I didn't know any of this until I saw her. They, they made her appointment. She shows up at the office that morning. When I began to get the story, she had, had ridden there on, on a bus. From there, she walked to the hospital, which was a mile and a half away. She spent the night in the restroom of the hospital because she knew that would one that has a toilet, it's got a basement where she can wash. Um, she slept on the floor. She knew it'd be safe. So this is a woman who's had a hard life and knows how to survive. I mean, she knows. She comes. In, she speaks Spanish only. Very little English she comes in at that time there were no spanish-speaking people in this part of texas the central east texas the next morning she gets up she washes her face and combs her hair and she comes over to see me when she's going to pay me she opens her purse what does she have in this bag it's one of these mexican spreading bags she just got some tortillas i see these tortillas and that's probably all she had to eat she had these tortillas she brought with her to eat on the way she pulls out She knew what the fee was, so she was going to pay me. She pulls out a crumpled up bill, just wadded up, sturdy. Turns out it's a $5 bill when I look. And I'm thinking, well, my question is, am I going to take the $5? It was never, the question was not, am I going to do an abortion for her or not, because she knew what the fee was doing. And she's come all this way with no money. I mean, you talk about living just on faith I mean, and desperation I mean she takes what well, gets the other money for the bus ticket and some old dry tortillas and she comes up there and sleeps on the floor of the restroom uh, and she has no money except her she got a bus ticket back and that's all she has she drops that in my hand and um, so my thought was okay if she has made her contribution do I, as a matter of Pride and respect. Do I take the money and say thank you, or do I give it back to her? Said so to I would give it back to her. I said I would like to return this to you in gratitude for uh, the courage and fortitude you've shown in getting here. And uh, she doesn't understand anything I'm saying, probably. <laughs> I, but I. But, she gives me this big toothless smile, takes the money quickly, and puts it back in her purse. So I know, okay, it was okay. <laughs> she was she was glad to get the money back. Um, well, cause you see, this is for me. That I was. This is for uh, for a cause. Not this. Is, this was is, not about money. Um, and but the clergy group, we were we doing this to. Change society to meet needs. We there was clearly an obligation to be compassionate uh, and to serve, and, and to never could could you be greedy.
2: At first, neighbors and local authorities ignored Curtis's illegal activities, but his young women, dressed in countercultural clothing, often driving in Volkswagens and smelling of marijuana. Flooded Athens, Curtis's practice began to raise suspicions.
1: Police started following these cars to my office. Uh, I thought, well, so they just sat there and then they would uh, they would leave. But then they started stopping some of these cars. And lo and behold, as you would expect, they found some drugs on some of them. Marijuana, these things. They put a couple of men in, in jail. So then I get the message from the girl comes back and says, My boyfriend says, You got to come get him out of jail. If you don't, he's going to tell the police that you're doing abortions because it's your fault he's in jail. He wouldn't be in jail if you didn't, if I wasn't bringing me here, and he wouldn't be bringing me here if you didn't do abortions. That's the kind of logic I had to deal with. Then one of my nurses came to me and she said, Dr. Boyd, I believe in what you're doing. That's all. But you need to go to the city
2: to do it. You can't stay here. So I went to Dallas. Curtis moved to Dallas in late 1969. There, he continued to offer illegal abortions without any issues. But his practice became more precarious after a group of feminists seeking to overturn the state's abortion laws provoked a district attorney who promised to crack down on Dallas County's illegal abortion providers.
0: We're talking about abortion, it's against the law. But we know that it's our right. Of our bodies, we are going to win. We've got to be together to fight.
3: Us As Curtis quietly provided thousands of illegal abortions to women across the Southwest, feminist activists, many of them students at the University of Texas at Austin, started a birth control information center near campus. At that time, unmarried women had no legal right to access birth control. The Birth Control Information Center began as an effort to help unmarried women get birth control pills. Although the center's original mission was to improve access to contraception, the center began receiving calls from women asking for help getting abortions. These requests expanded the group's mission. Volunteers at the center referred women to safe abortion providers in San Antonio, Dallas, and Piedras Negras in Mexico. Here's one of the group's members, Alicia Jerry those of
6: us that drove women to san antonio um often they were very sick with morning sickness and so we'd have driving down they'd be in the back seat with a, bu- a bucket in their lap <laughs> and <then laughs> they'd have the abortion and afterwards the hormones of pregnancy in early pregnancies like that will drop very fast and they were completely back to feeling normal And we'd get back in the car and I'd say, is there anything I can get you before we go? And they go, yeah, hamburger french fries and (laughs) a milkshake. I was like, oh well, I know part of this is you're just relieved, but I am so grateful that you feel so good (laughs) after feeling so horrible. You know, and then the psychological relief. And of course, as you know, many, many of those women had already had many children already. And this was not only physical thing but a financial thing for them to be freed up for continuing and of course they were all given birth control if they wanted it and whatever worked the best we put in IUDs we had you know oral contraceptions whatever was needed so um so we had carpools that we did that with which was really uh really great you know it was like sisterhood and when I'm talking in the past, you just seem to know a lot of these things are still going on but because that's the beginning of us being very active about that part of women's health.
3: Alicia Jerry and her fellow activists believed women shouldn't have to break the law to get the health care they needed. They asked one of the only women lawyers they knew for help in challenging the state's abortion law. That lawyer, Sarah Weddington, was the daughter of a Methodist minister and had only recently graduated from University of Texas Law School. She agreed to take on the case and began looking for a plaintiff who'd been denied an abortion in Texas. Weddington and her team found Norma McCorvey, known in legal records as Jane Roe. They filed suit on her behalf in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas.
2: The lawsuit pitted the feminist activists against Henry Wade, District Attorney of Dallas County who defended the abortion statute on behalf of the state of Texas. Wade was known for his moral conservatism. He staunchly opposed abortion and obscenity, and he even used his office to enforce the state's Sunday laws, which prevented shops from freely doing business on the Christian Sabbath. A 1972 song, The Ballad of Henry Wade, even catalogued his track record of being a moral crusader. (laughs) Now the laws are made to protect the people. So
6: it goes, that's what they say. Round here drinking wine's no crime, but boy, don't try to smoke it. You'll hear from the man, Henry Wade.
2: The U.S. District Court ruled in favor of Weddington and declared Texas's abortion regulations to be unconstitutional. Even so, the legal outcome still worried Curtis the court had refused to grant an injunction. This lack of injunction meant that Henry Wade and other Texas officials could still prosecute abortion providers. And Wade told reporters that he planned to continue doing just that, because the state of Texas, in his words, had a compelling interest in protecting the life of the unborn child. In his public defense of the unborn, Wade reproduced the viewpoint of Catholic theologians, who argued that life began at conception and that abortion is murder. Fearful that Wade's commitment to enforcing the abortion law put him at greater legal risk, Curtis moved his practice to New Mexico, where that state's newly liberalized abortion laws enabled him to provide reproductive health care without facing the same legal risks.
1: Good evening. In a landmark ruling, the Supreme Court today legalized abortions. The majority in cases from Texas and Georgia said that the decision to end a pregnancy during the first three months belongs to the woman and her doctor, not the government. Thus, the anti-abortion laws of 46 states were rendered
5: unconstitutional.
2: On January 23, 1973, when the Supreme Court's decision came down in Roe v. Wade, Curtis had been a full-time abortion provider for five years, first in Texas and then in New Mexico.
1: This has been legalized. Thank God it's over. (laughs) That was my first thought. I had made it. I had survived. I was going to do something else.
3: Curtis planned to devote himself to other social justice issues. The same group of ministers who'd first enlisted Curtis to provide abortions had other ideas. They rightly worried that local hospitals would continue to exclude women especially poor women, who might need abortions. Private clinics might charge exorbitant prices. And so, this group of Texas clergy asked Curtis to open an abortion clinic in Dallas that would be accessible to women from all economic backgrounds. The clergy provided the funds to cover startup costs. Within 30 days of the Supreme Court's ruling in Roe v. Wade, Curtis opened the Fairmount Center in Dallas. Everything about the Fairmount Center, from the office to the employees, reflected Curtis's compassionate approach to abortion care.
1: It was an old, um, large old house that had been there with an upstairs. And I like to feel I was homey, very comfortable. But then I didn't want the more structured or sterility of a professional office building. And so we built it out, started employing and training staff. And the staff we got were incredible. I mean, this was on the height of the women's movement. We had, we had receptionists who were PhDs in women's studies. I mean, some of them were graduates of seminaries. Uh, they were just incredible people. They, they just, the same reason I was there, they just, they wanted to do this.
3: Curtis remembers the years immediately after Roe as the calm before the storm. They had no security at the clinic. Few, if any, protesters picketed outside. Staff members and patients went in and out of the clinic unharassed and unharried. But abortion remained a fraught issue. Many women who came to the clinic were reckoning with their reproductive choices and their religious beliefs. Curtis's staff included abortion counselors who offered patients emotional support. Among these counselors was a 29-year-old woman from California named Glenna Halverson.
2: Like Curtis, Glenna hadn't planned on a career in abortion care. She grew up in Modesto, California. While Curtis grew up in a religious family, Glenna's father was an atheist and her mother agnostic. She first learned about feminism at home.
0: I've typically thought of my background and it, particularly in contrast to Curtis's, as so middle America, average, normal. Um, however, as I've looked back on it, I think mm, that's how it appeared on the outside, but that was it was certainly more complicated than that and hopefully more interesting. I grew up in Modesto, California. My father was... Uh, a Norwegian immigrant. My mother was uh, an escapee from Philadelphia proper. They were both avid feminists, so I was raised by feminists. Given that my father was a Norwegian immigrant, that my mother had a career, we we weren't your your normal suburban California family of the '50s.
2: After graduating from Occidental College in California with a degree in English literature, Glenna followed her first husband to Texas. While he pursued a PhD, she found employment at the Urban League, working to desegregate schools. Later, she worked as a counselor at a halfway house for people diagnosed with chronic schizophrenia. In 1969, when one of her clients needed an abortion, Glenna helped her get medical care.
0: I was told to contact the chaplain at SMU, Southern Methodist University, which I did. And he referred me to a local doctor, uh, a Curtis Boyd, whose office was five blocks from the halfway house. And being the arrogant young feminist that I was, I thought a local MD doing abortions must be not very good, despite the reassurance from the chaplain. So I raised money from board members and sent that woman to the feminist clinic in Los Angeles. I took her to the airport, got her on the plane. This was Obviously, when you could still do things like that, uh, went back to pick her up at the end of the day. She got off of the plane, crying, confused, totally disoriented. Um, she'd gotten very good care at the clinic. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that this was a very, very troubled um woman who'd had to make a long journey by herself to another world go through and experience that all of which was strange and frightening to her back to an airport get on a plane Um, it was a long hard day and she was um, she'd come apart by the time she got back
2: One of Glenna's friends told her about a job opportunity working as an abortion counselor in Dallas. Glenna remembers what her job entailed.
0: This is private time. Our counseling is all one-on-one that we set aside to answer any and all of your questions, to discuss your concerns. There's obviously a lot of paperwork and importantly the the consent forms and the information contained therein, but it's truly the patient's time. And it's an opportunity to talk to somebody who's not part of your daily life about how you're feeling with this pregnancy and with being here today to have the abortion or begin the abortion process. So we can start with whatever is most on your mind. I, I'll tell you that the, um, the quick and easy questions they ask, which is how long is this going to take? How much will it hurt? When can I get back to my normal life? The more interesting thing is that with that kind of an introduction, then the counselor's task is simply to sit still, to be present and to allow the silence that it takes for the patient to go wherever she needs to go. And patients, my experience and that of most of our counselors is that Once the patient believes that she's actually being listened to and that you are interested in her situation, any parts of her story that she chooses to tell, patients will talk about surprising aspects of their life. They will reveal far more than I ever imagined that 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 they would, Um, I was accustomed at the halfway house and even with the school desegregation project in having repeated contact with the same patients or people, clients. And I wondered how much a patient would share with a stranger. And to this day, I am stunned by the emotional range and depth at which patients will talk to us once they believe that we're listening.
2: Glenna came to love her work at the clinic. She found satisfaction helping other women. In her previous jobs, providing mental health care and assisting in the desegregation of schools, she had often felt powerless to affect change. With abortion counseling, Glenna found that she could make a tremendous difference in people's lives.
0: With a woman presenting for an abortion, it was so concrete. It was something that we could do. She could walk in pregnant and desperate, and she could walk out in several hours relieved, no longer pregnant. And prepared to go on with her life. It was
3: fabulous. It was through their work at the clinic that Glenna and Curtis met, fell in love, and formed a partnership that has lasted nearly 50 years. But their first meeting was hardly auspicious.
0: I I, I threw him out of the surgery area because he wasn't dressed appropriately and I had no idea who he was. And um, he said, Perhaps you don't know who I am. And I said, I don't. Really think that's relevant. You are inappropriately dressed, and you need to step out. Um, So that was our very romantic meeting. Um, Curtis was intrigued.
1: I didn't have on a suit and tie. I was, yeah, I was a, I was a bit of a radical then. You know, I had long, I had long hair at that time, and uh, I had on a Indian shirt, a Oaxacan beard. So she she had uh, no idea who I was <laughs> I didn't look like a doctor. That's for sure. <laughs> so soon I went back. I had a ponytail. I cut my hair short. started putting on my surgery scrubs. And I realized I had to I had to present a diff- different appearance to the patients' coming, so that I did not I did not make them uncomfortable.
3: Curtis was immediately smitten. It took Glenna longer to come around to him. Glenna, like Curtis, was recently divorced, but she was soon taken by his humor, idealism, kindness, and deep concern for others. She also adored the three children he shared with his ex-wife. As Glenna and Curtis fell in love, their practice in Dallas grew in the 1970s and 80s. One of the most striking things from this period is how much support their clinic had from the community around them. Referrals came from ministers as well as doctors and by word of mouth. Local religious leaders were often present at the clinic to help counsel patients. We had um, seminary students who rotated through
0: um, and uh, were trained to do abortion counseling as, as part of their religious training.
3: This quiet support for the Fairmount Clinic was ongoing and it sustained Curtis and Glenna in the difficult days ahead. Soon, louder, angrier voices, also often religious, would pierce the walls of this clinic, making the work of abortion providers and clinic staff more precarious.
0: More than 130 anti-abortion activists from Dallas and suburbs gathered outside the Fairmount Center, a private abortion and family planning clinic in Oak Lawn. Despite rumors that the group might try to go inside, no such incident took place. Inside the center, business was slow, because the advanced publicity and the clinic's directors had discouraged patients from coming. It wasn't good weather for an outdoor demonstration, but one member of the Right to Life group said their march in the rain was just proof of their dedication and the growing belief that their cause is gaining support. Within the past 18 months, there's been a tremendous amount of pro-life sentiment, and we're growing stronger, and we're just not gonna quit until we can see something done about this issue.
2: Within half a decade of the Fairmount Clinic's founding, Anti-abortion activism had rapidly metastasized. Between 1977 and 1993, abortion providers experienced tremendous violence nationwide, including at least 28 reported bombings, more than 100 arsons, nearly 200 reports of stalking, and 166 death threats. The violence accompanied ongoing attempts by anti-abortion politicians to erode abortion rights. Violent protest and legal pressure increasingly intruded on Curtis and Glenna's medical practice. Like many other states, Texas witnessed an upsurge of anti-abortion activism from the mid-1970s onward, activism that grew increasingly militant over time. In 1974, on the first anniversary of Roe v. Wade, an interdenominational gathering of Catholics, evangelicals, and mainline Protestants peacefully gathered in Fort Worth to protest the Supreme Court's decision. The following year, Anti-abortion protesters picketed the National Federation of Republican Women's Convention, where they singled out pro-choice Republicans like Nelson Rockefeller and Betty Ford for criticism. Protesters displayed graphic images that portrayed legalized abortion as an ongoing holocaust. They marched outside of abortion clinics and hospitals, carrying with them crucified baby dolls covered in fake blood, as well as pictures of fetuses in plastic bags. By the late 1970s, some anti-abortion protesters engaged in what they called rescue work. As historian Carissa Hagenberg has documented, this work involves swarming abortion clinics, blockading doors, destroying medical equipment, and screaming at patients and abortion providers. Sometimes, protesters called in bomb threats. All of these actions were meant to disrupt a clinic's daily operations and to terrify clinic staff. On a day when it was cold and rainy at a time when most people are sleeping, abortion protesters sang and marched along Dallas streets in front of one of the city's eight abortion clinics. When 29 moved from the front of the clinic onto clinic property, they were arrested and carried away.
1: Up till now, during these past 14 or 15 or 16 years, we've come to a level where we have to arouse the consciousness of the people with something a little bit more dramatic.
2: The new abortion protest tactics have been used extensively in the last few months in Atlanta, Pittsburgh, Chicago, and New York. Still, the clinics remain open. Operators say if they are forced to close, the repercussions will be serious.
3: The anti abortion movement increasingly drew evangelicals and Catholics into its ranks, and leaders encouraged more drastic actions.
6: Inside the North Dallas Women's Clinic, protesters sang hymns. He loves the children of the world.
2: He did. Will you continue to do this?
6: Of course, until they stop killing babies. All
2: the
3: babies of the
6: world.
3: During the 1980s, hundreds and sometimes thousands of anti abortion demonstrators protested at abortion clinics across the country. In El Paso, a reproductive health clinic had to build a wall around its property to keep disruptive protesters from harassing patients.
2: This is all that's left of the women's clinic of Mesquite. Investigators say someone broke into the clinic last night, set it afire, and burned down this entire office complex. But beyond that, the statistics on abortion clinic violence nationwide is chilling. In 1984, 25 clinics were bombed and burned in this same year. There were six attempted bombings. There were 36 threats to bomb or burn.
3: Anti-abortion activists also began targeting clinic workers. On quiet Sunday mornings, they protested outside these caregivers' homes in Dallas, using bullhorns to call them murderers. Such acts coincided with sustained pressure on hospitals to stop offering abortions. In response to boycott threats, from the anti-abortion pastors of 85 different Dallas area churches, Dallas Presbyterian Hospital, located only a mile and a half from Curtis and Glenna's clinic, agreed to suspend its abortion services in 1985. That hospital was not alone. Nationally, the number of abortion clinics and providers began a steady decline in 1982. That year, there were nearly 3,000 hospitals, clinics, and doctors' offices that provided abortions. By 2017, that number had fallen by nearly half. Even as the number of abortion providers declined, some anti-abortion protesters viewed this change as too incremental. They wanted an immediate end to abortion and were willing to use radical means to reach their goal. A group called Operation Rescue typified the growing extremism in the movement. During the late 1980s and 1990s, more than 60,000 people were arrested at Operation Rescue Actions at abortion clinics across the country. Leaders of this group incited anti-abortion activists to violence, encouraging them to threaten abortion providers and their family members.
6: Another group of protesters tried to get inside the Fairmount Center, but were unsuccessful. Operation Rescue organizers say altogether, some 250 protesters fanned out across Dallas and Tarrant Counties today, staging demonstrations at five abortion clinics.
4: You will have to leave this property or you still are subject to being arrested. Organizers
6: say they don't know how many women they talked to, but they're sure if anyone was having an abortion in Dallas today, she heard from Operation Rescue.
2: Anti-abortion activists regularly targeted Glenna and Curtis. Curtis received death threats. At least one protester threatened to harm his son. In 1988, on Christmas Eve, abortion opponents set fire to the Fairmount Clinic. It was one of three clinics targeted that night.
6: Authorities say the early Christmas morning blazes are the deliberate actions of at least two people due to the fact the second and third fires occurred within minutes of each other. Although the buildings are
2: across, there was no question that Curtis and Glenn's lives were at risk.
0: Arsons, bomb threats, uh, clinic invasions, death threats, harassment of staff at home or in the grocery store. Um, I'm feeling angry, feeling shocked and horrified. The arsons were, of course, very traumatic. My worst fear shifted from probably not having well, yeah, yeah. My my worst fear was and, st- and really still is a serious patient complication, um, but. Uh, On a more daily basis, my worst fear became the safety of our staff. I've always thought, you know, if they kill me, I'm dead, I'm gone. It's not a problem for me. Um, But I wondered, worried, how in the world I would live with injury or death, of someone who worked for me and I actually worked closely with uh, the the then executive director of Planned Parenthood of of Greater Boston when uh, an anti-abortion gunner walked in and killed one of her receptionists. Those are horrifying experiences it's terrorism
1: but there's not a lot you can do if someone wants to kill you they will uh, it's, it, if they're willing to be, be caught they they can uh, so i knew that and i had numerous death threats innumerable uh, they came in the mail had them dropped to my mailbox at home and i think that most people who stayed in the, the field they they decided this It's really that service. You you have to be, uh, I think these people are very committed. You're committed. You you believe this is important. Uh, It's essential to women's rightful place in society, one of equality, uh, one of autonomy. You you can't deny her personhood that, that way. You're talking about the personhood of the fetus. It's the woman's personhood that's right there, existing in front of you. So I thought, this work, my feeling was, and I talked to the staff about, this this work, is it, at the bottom line, is this work worth risking dying for? And you think, no one wants to die. We don't want to get shot at work. Because this risk exists, are we going to stop providing the service, or are we going to continue to provide it? My decision and Glenn's decision has been, been made. We're going to continue to provide this
2: service. And... Hope that the worst does not occur things began to change in the early 1990s because federal courts applied the racketeer influenced and corrupt operations act known as rico to anti-abortion groups if found guilty of violating rico statutes anti-abortion activists could now be subject to severe financial penalties and extended prison sentences rico prosecutions deterred many but not all direct action anti-abortion groups. A leaderless underground network of violent anti-abortion activists continued to terrorize providers. They circulated wanted posters of doctors that included their images, physical descriptions, office locations, and license plate numbers. Protesters from a group calling itself Rescue America were outside the clinic yesterday morning as physician David Gunn arrived in his car to go to work. Police say the doctor was shot in the back three times with bullets from a 38 caliber weapon and died during surgery in the local hospital. One bystander says the protesters showed no remorse.
1: Just minutes after 52-year-old Dr. Barnett Slepian and his wife returned home from synagogue, a sniper shot one bullet from a high-powered rifle into their home, killing the doctor. The killing comes just days after authorities warned abortion providers in the region about possible violence due to four earlier attacks that all happened within a few weeks of November 11th.
2: Dr. George Tiller was shot and killed in church yesterday. For years, Tiller was a lightning rod for abortion rights opponents, and his murder is sparking new fears for the safety of other abortion providers.
3: These violent outbursts coincided with sustained pressure on abortion clinics through what have come to be known as trap laws. In 1992, the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in Planned Parenthood v. Casey cleared the pathway for regulations that were often thinly veiled attempts to make abortion provision and access more difficult. Nearly half the states instituted procedural roadblocks, including mandatory waiting periods, invasive ultrasounds, and mandatory counseling, while providers were burdened with extensive reporting, personnel qualifications, structural requirements, or costly licensing, all of which were meant to make running an abortion clinic prohibitively expensive. These sustained attacks on abortion access only strengthened the Boyd's resolve. Glenna put it in the following way. Neither Curtis nor I planned to make this our life's work
0: and I, if it had gone the way we expected which was abortion would have become part of mainstream medicine and specialized clinics were, weren't necessary um which i we expected to happen within 3 to 5 years we'd have moved on i'd have done something else there's a stubborn part of me that was th- Just damn, they will not win. They will not, I will not be defeated. They will not
2: win. The US Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe in June of 2022 shuttered the Boyd's Clinic.
6: Well, Texans who perform an abortion could now face up to life in prison and a steep fine. This after the state's so-called trigger law went into effect today.
2: The state of Texas now criminalizes abortion from the moment of fertilization, except when pregnancy, jeopardizes the patient's life or risks substantial impairment of a major bodily function. There are no exceptions for cases of rape or incest. Doctors who perform abortions in violation of the law can be punished with life in prison and a fine of at least $100,000. In other words, the law is now even more punitive than when Curtis first started offering illegal abortions in the 1960s. Many states neighboring Texas have completely banned or severely restricted access to abortion. Even as new laws are choking off abortion access across the country, some states are taking measures to protect reproductive health care. In New Mexico, where the Boyds still have another clinic, abortion remains accessible. However, Dobbs has caused a dramatic increase in the Boyds' total number of patients. While they once had an average of 40 clients per week, they now treat 100. A larger number of patients now arrive from out of state.
0: They feel confused. There's confusion. Some, some are angry at the situation, but more are simply desperate.
1: And They're going to have to get that. What? I mean, they go through a great deal more expense and effort to have to get from their home city in Dallas, Houston, Austin, San Antonio. They're coming from all over Texas. Well, it's it's a big, it's a long way, you know, to drive from East Texas to Albuquerque. And it's a problem if you get mad to be off work longer. You've got to arrange childcare. So it's a burden to even if women find out where to go. And can get an appointment. Can get an appointment and even have whatever money is needed. They've still got to have these extra expenses, car, gas, childcare, also work time. Those, so it's, but despite that, mostly when they get to actually are seeing us there, they tell us how grateful they are that we're able to see them and they thank us. And I said, uh, that's quite gracious all of them. It's been a real burden on them, but most of them don't. They may be frustrated, but they don't not with us. They they yes. they appreciate the fact that at least I got an appointment and I got here and I'm grateful for that.
3: The anti abortion movement is not content to rest upon its Supreme Court victory. Instead, leaders want to use the Dobbs ruling as a springboard to wall off abortion seekers from those who might help them. At the time of this recording, efforts are underway in Curtis's hometown to repudiate his life's work. In Athens, Texas, where Curtis first began offering abortions 55 years ago, residents recently passed a symbolic proposition outlawing abortion in Athens, except to save the life of the mother. Speaking from a conservative evangelical understanding that human life begins at conception, these abortion foes have enshrined legislation Making Athens a sanctuary city for the unborn. The ordinance describes Curtis as a notorious illegal abortionist who engaged in violent and criminal actions. Whereas abortion seekers from across the Southwest once journeyed to Athens for help, this ordinance criminalizes abortion referral and makes it more difficult for Athens residents to travel out of state for an abortion. Those who support the ordinance in Athens and similar local measures across the state frame fighting abortion as a Christian duty. This proposed ordinance is merely one example of how anti-abortion activists are trying to assert that only their religious views on abortion are legitimate. But their understandings of life, of gender, and of healthcare are fundamentally at odds with what many other mainline Protestants, Jews, and others believe. Curtis's career and his faith-based commitment to affirming his patients' dignity, autonomy, and choice stands as evidence of what those opposed to abortion have sought to deny. That faith also animates the struggle for reproductive justice. Despite the dire status of abortion access today, Curtis and Glenna have not given up their struggle, and they've not given up hope. Abortion, they believe, is a canary in the coal mine for the health of a democracy. And as bad as things are now, they told us, a majority of Americans want to see this freedom enshrined.
0: Losing the right to abortion is indicative of the, da- the danger to our democracy, to individual freedoms.
1: The work has always been for me a bigger issue. It's about women's place in our society, one of equality or respect that they have full citizenship we're going to attain that because the majority of the people in this country even today on most of the polls somewhere in the 60s at 70 percent of women think that roe v and beverage have not been overturned so eventually we will prevail I don't think I will live to see that it's not that fast so I have to tell them people i'm working with and don't you know change is slow and difficult so keep working on it Fifty years from now, I look back and see what you've accomplished. And when I look back on my fifty years or something kind of like on hers, we think, "Well, have we, yeah, you know, I'm back where I started." <laughs> yes. But, but it's not really. There's been changes. See, there, there, women's organizations are stronger, more. they're uh, half the states are going to have abortion rights. It's not. There have been changes. This is an aberrant period in our history this supreme court decision does not represent the will of the majority of the people of this country
6: we are going heaven knows where we are going we know where there we will get there heaven knows how we will get we
2: know we will. Sex and History is written and produced by Lauren Gutterman and me, Gillian Frank. Our senior producer is Sunia Lee Ganawi. Rebecca Davis is our story editor and producer. Our assistant producer is Mallory Zamansky.
3: To see our liner notes for this episode and all our previous episodes, please visit our website at www.sexinghistory.com.
2: This episode of Sexing History was supported by funding from the American Historical Review. Check out our article about the making of this episode in the American Historical Review's spring 2023 issue.
3: From all of us at Sexing History, thanks for listening.